This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill Bennett in for Simi this week. Well, there is continued conversation about what is happening in Stanley Park, especially with the park board vote to remove the temporary bike lane and uh, try and figure out what it's going to look like in the future. Well, Angela Hare joins us now, the Vancouver Park Board Commissioner who initiated the motion. Angela, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, did this play out the way that you had anticipated as far as the vote to remove that temporarily temporary bike lane and then try and figure out in the future what it might look like? Oh, yes, I did. Most definitely. And so what are you hoping then with this development and with this vote at the board? What are you hoping the future of the causeway and the roads through Stanley Park will look like? Sure. Thank you. Um, we are hoping that the the lane that was temporarily um, closed to be opened up very shortly or as soon as possible with direction from staff. And then um, coming back to the table of staff, uh, we have initiated that the staff come back with a more permanent solution, which will still uh, allow for the two-lane access plus a permanent bike lane. And are there plans for that that have been drawn up at this point, or is that something, does the work on that start now? The work will start now. And when you talk about uh, removing then the bike lane that the vote was made on, on Monday, uh, how big of a job is that as far as uh, I know that, that you said as soon as possible or in the, in the short term? Is, is it a bigger job other than crews going in there and, and just removing those cones? Oh, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not um, it's not as simple as that. There are um, some concrete barriers. Some of them are temporary. Or I think most of them are temporary, and so it's not a it's not an easy task. It's a task that'll take some work, but we want to just put in a hint to do it as soon as possible. Hopefully, for the holiday season, as we're going to see more traffic come through Stanley Park and more tourism come in as well. Right. I, I mean, some might argue we're already kind of in the holiday season, being as it's December seventh. Yeah. But so, are, are we talking, say, a week or by mid-November, that kind of thing? Well, well, we gave them the dates of December 15th to come back to us and hopefully open it um, before the end of, or before Christmas, I guess. But let's say it's not, it's not in concrete. We have to work with the staff. We have to trust the park board staff to come up with the, what, what their solutions are and how quickly they can move. And, and it, it was just a suggestion. It's not, um, it's not, um, we're not forcing them. We're, we're just suggesting it and we have to work with them. Right. And I would imagine, too, it's going to also be dependent on if we get more snow or what the, the weather's like and how that plays out. Exactly. Exactly. Do you see a solution or do you see a way in that clearly there are cycling advocates that are not happy with this decision? There are people who are very happy with this decision, some of whom have taken their case to the Human Rights Commission. Do you see a way or is it possible, do you think, to find a compromise where people will be happy? 
Almost oh, definitely, Emily, and this is why we um, initiated um, our suggestions uh, during, when, when, when we moved this motion was firstly take, uh, let's, let's get that temporary bike lane removed, which is exactly that. It was temporary. It was, it was um, brought in uh, during COVID and open up the two lanes so there's a flow of traffic again and there's no backups on Georgia. And let's come up with a better solution, a solution that's not just going to be temporary. It's going to be a permanent bike solution and not last just this lifetime, but a few lifetimes. Right. And and do you think the does there need to be a change in that when we talk about this lane that that it was called temporary, it, it was brought in at a time when uh, people who use that park will know that there, you could have cyclists on the seawall as well as pedestrians. And yes, it's it's narrow in a lot of parts, but that seawall was shared. It was brought in because of COVID when cyclists were, were taken off the seawall. It was given to pedestrians and cyclists moved up to the roads. Now that cyclists are back on the seawall, is there still a need for a dedicated bike lane through the roadway in the park? Well, this is why we're, we're giving it back to the staff to come back, back and let us know as well. And, um, I mean, cyclists are more than welcome to cycle on the lanes like they did previously as well. But we are looking at um, how can we bring in a permanent bike lane over over um, towards uh, the lanes. This is, I mean, it's, it's been expressed that people do like biking over there. Um, it's also been expressed that there's people that don't want that second lane closed, and there has been issues uh, with this as well. So we're trying to work with all of the Vancouverites to come with, up with a better solution over by um, the two lanes. The park board also is a board that needs to raise its own revenue or a lot of its own revenue. How much will this impact or bring back parking revenue for the board from those parking stalls in Stanley Park? Um, I'm not going to quote numbers right now, but it is going to bring back quite a bit of revenue from the parking stalls. Plus, it's going to open up um, accessibility to tour buses as well and also TransLink which has been affecting the small businesses and restaurants in the area. So we're looking forward to getting um, revenue from those things and also opening up the businesses. Uh, And I know the issue of raising uh, parking prices also came up at the board on Monday. Will people that are using those parking spots or any parking spots really that are in parks and that that generate revenue for the park board, can we expect that those prices, the, the cost of parking is going to go up? Uh, they might go slightly up. When we when we did take over office, there was a slight deficit. So we are having to deal with the previous government's deficit. So with that, we might um, increase the parking um, amount. Um, but again, we're also looking at uh, different areas of how we can generate revenues, which is including uh, lifting the moratorium and also other uh, increase in um, revenues, like creative ways. How can we bring back the fun in Vancouver and how can we make some money and uh, make our parks, recreation, and beaches a much beautiful place. Right. And when you talk about lifting the moratorium, you're talking about the, the bigger events or those commercial events that would pay then to use the parks as venues? Yes, of course. And does that moratorium, is that effective immediately then if if people that put on those events, organizers are interested, they can now start applying to the park board or start kind of getting that ball rolling? Um, I, I believe it's still a process because we have to lift it. and It's already been lifted, but we, there's a process in the booking system. 
But yes, shortly it will be lifted and we will be able to do that. All right. Uh, are, are you pleased then with the way things, and again, obviously not, you're never going to get 100% happiness from people when we're talking about a bike lane, especially a bike lane in Stanley Park, but are you pleased with how things have gone so far? Almost definitely. I mean, again, it was a very tough decision. It wasn't easy. And, um, but when we're talking about equitable spaces, accessibility for everyone, I can um, sleep at night for sure. People with disabilities, seniors, young families, other people that take uh, the TransLink, they're able to have access back into the park. They're able to find parking. Uh, hopefully we will not, I, will, I know we will not have backups like we did before, uh, which will decrease idling on Georgia Street as well. So yes, most definitely we are very excited. We are happy and looking forward to the way Vancouver is moving. All right, Angela, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for joining us and for being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy holidays. Thank you so much. That is Angela Hare, Vancouver Park Commissioner, the commissioner that initiated, initiated that motion that led to that vote earlier this week to remove that lane in the short term, temp, that temporary lane as soon as possible, and then work on what that might look like in the future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Future. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, the federal government has provided $25 million in funding, and this is going to the Jewish Community Centre of Greater Vancouver. We wanted to talk a little bit more about what this means for the centre and what the future is going to look like. Joining us to do that is Ezra Shankin, CEO of the Jewish Community Centre. Ezra, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Good morning, Jill. Just a quick correction on the CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. The community center is one of our amazing partners in this in this project. Oh, all right. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, what does this funding mean? Twenty five million dollars. What will it do? Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, we are in the midst of doing a once in a generation redevelopment at Forty First and Oak that'll. Uh, bring to not just the Jewish community, but the community as a whole, a a state-of-the-art community center, housing, school, you know, really, really incredible things that that are going to have an impact on the community as a whole. We're just absolutely thrilled to have uh, the federal government endorsing this along with our provincial government. And people will know this centre if you've ever driven by or gone into it. It's the property at Oak Street and West 41st in Vancouver. Uh, it's a big property. I didn't realise how large it was. And, and the redevelopment, it sounds like it's going to be very impressive. Yeah, it, it is a big property. Uh, it's, you know, in some ways it's big, in some ways it's well, right? We're looking at a um, our new community center is going to be vertical in nature, um, which will actually match up with uh, the densification that's going on within the neighborhood. It'll be really exciting in that way. Um, we're looking at a, between an eight and a nine story community center that'll really go rise up from the surface parking lot that exists right now. Um, that's going to be built um, as the community center itself continues to operate all the way until the completion. 
So for people who are continuing to use or going to the Rothstein Theater or using our gyms or our art gallery or the early childhood ed or service, uh, services for seniors, that is going to continue all the way up until we switch buildings. Uh, and then we will start working on phase two of construction, which will include over 500 rental housing units in towers, which is really exciting to do that for the community as a whole and, uh, and hopefully a, a new home for our King David High School. And even looking at that area with the Oak Ridge development down the street, just a bit to the east, it really is a fast growing neighborhood. Do you have to be a member of the community center or how does it work or how do you envision it kind of remaining and growing as a gathering place for people? That's a great question, Joe. Uh, we, we have there are multiple ways that people are interacting with our center every single day. So we have people who are absolutely members and they're coming. They're using the gym. They're also supporting the center. Uh, we have other people whose kids are coming for uh, early childhood education. Really an incredible program there. Uh, we have people who are coming in for for day centers for for seniors. Uh, and then we have tons and tons of people who use the theater every every single month uh, who are coming in just for, you know, the afternoon to come and do a show at the theater or come to see the see a theater show in the evening. Well, it does sound like it is going to be a great, well, already better than than how it is. You mentioned the timeline and that people mm-hmm. will still be able to to go to the center. So no closures then as far as people no, being able no. to access it. That was actually really important to us as, as a community. Um, you know, the center serves not just the Jewish community, but so many communities that surround it within the Oak Ridge area. Um, we wanted to make sure we had uninterrupted service all the way through because our mission and the mission of the center and the community is to deliver is to deliver for the community that's around us. And, and I think that this is one of I think one of the most amazing parts about it is that we've kind of made the design in a way so that everything continues all the way up until the new first phase building opens up. All right. Well, it's going to be uh, impressive, to say the least. And uh, with that cash injection from the federal government, Ezra, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Jill, thank you so much for giving us uh, the attention and another huge thanks to both the province and to the federal government for all that they've done to bring us to this point. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, I think we like to think in BC, if you are diagnosed with something serious, say you had some kind of scan and there was a potential that maybe you are dealing with a type of cancer, that you will get timely treatment. Well, we are hearing from people more and more that that is not the case. My next guest is a woman by the name of Ree, and Ree was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2019, has been monitored regularly, and is now dealing with something suspicious that came up and was told that she required follow-up and she has had much difficulty in getting that. And Rhea is here to tell us more about how she has been trying to navigate the healthcare system. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Uh, Rhea, can you tell us a little bit about what has been happening to you in the past little while? You were following or trying to follow up. Your oncologist telling you that you needed to follow up because something that looked suspicious had been detected. What has that been like? Well, it's been hellish, frankly. Um, 
I, I had a mammogram, a routine like follow-up mammogram in late August, and I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear back anything from the radiology department. And then I met with my oncologist in September, mid-September, and she said that I should definitely pursue it myself, that I should make phone calls to the department. And, you know, she informed me that I, they needed further testing, uh, mammogram with dye contrast and then possibly ultrasound and biopsy. Well, having been down this road, I thought, well, you know, I've done this before. I can do it again. I just have to brace myself and, and do what she tells me. So I, I phoned up and they, I was informed, this was after a month, I phoned and I was informed, oh, well, it could be three months. So I said, well, you know, please don't forget me. I felt kind of kind of lost and forgotten out here. And this was only after a month because before in my earlier journey, everything happened on a very, very quick timeline. And so then the second time I phoned her, because I was starting to struggle with anxiety and depression, and I, you know, poured my heart out to her and told her how I was struggling and and I was upset and, and cried and said, do, what do I have to do? Do I have to, you know, go to the ministry? And she said, please do. She begged me to. She said that that she's the only person there and that there's a huge backup and there's a shortage of staff and there's absolutely nothing she could do to help me. So I, you know, on most good days, I just, I exercise vigorously and I try to live in the present and take deep breaths and visualize all the tools I've been given when I suffered from depression after um, the first cancer bout when I had a medication that was induced that. And, but when days when nothing worked, then I thought, well, I, ha- I can't just sit here and feel helpless and hopeless. So then I would write a letter. So I wrote to David Eby. He wasn't quite our prime minister yet, but I thought I could plant the seed. And I wrote to Adrian Dix and I wrote to my MLA. Um, I got a you know a nice form letter. Sorry for what you're going through from David Eby, but he's not quite there yet. And so I'll refer it to him when the time comes. Uh, Adrian Dix, I heard absolutely nothing back, so I resent the letter after a few weeks, two, three weeks, and I heard absolutely nothing back, not even a form letter story, this is happening to you, nothing. So then I phoned up and left a message, still nothing, no response whatsoever. I'd always thought that he was such a kind and empathetic man watching him on TV in regards to the, to the pandemic, but... Um, I heard nothing, and I contacted my MLA, and she was an absolute, uh, very sweet and caring person, and she responded, or, you know, representative from her office responded right away, and uh, eventually I met with her, and she was very empathetic and listened carefully, even when I was like, you know, ranting dramatically and, and and upset. She just calmly and patiently listened, and she said she's doing everything she can and that um, she's, you know, made inquiries here and there, and, and my oncologist at the same time had been phoning and bugging the office. And so then she, she put forward, she phoned, she said, I'm going to contact the Ministry of Health representative again because she had already. And so that afternoon, um, somebody called me. I'm sure it was just at their urge, her urging because they had ignored my pleas for help 
many times before. And so I was informed by that person that um, there was absolutely nothing that he could do. The messaging time and time again, whoever I speak to, is that it's my duty. I have to it's my responsibility to to get care for myself, that I have to advocate and I have to keep doing this and I have to keep doing that. So he gave me a number. Oh, here's another place that you can fight for your those words that, he, that you can complain essentially. So he gave me a number to call um, that was patient client care. Essentially, you can make complaints or in- inquiries or whatnot. So I phoned them and they got an answering machine and left a message. That was just yesterday. So I, I don't know how long it'll take it, but in a, an email from my MLA, she said, "Oh, it can take up to forty days to to hear back." Or so. I'm just left feeling like, um, you know, I even if I make a complaint to this department, if I get this this test that I need, and then who knows how long it'll be for the next ones and the next ones and the treatment. But the the main point here is that it's not just about me; it's about everyone. And this has been like a deep dark secret. I didn't know any of this when I first had cancer I had from the bad first suspicious excuse me mammogram to the end of treatment was less than six months now the latest I've been told is that I have to wait uh, another the the last estimate was five or six months until I get the next test right and your concern is which means my concern is that I'm not the only one there are other people out there with maybe even more pressing, probably more pressing, the fact that they keep moving the goalposts. I, I'm sure you've heard of Farrah Kruger, who had to wait, I'm not sure how long before she got all her tests. By the time she, they scheduled her, her surgery, she was told she would lose an ear, part of her jaw, and she's already had, I think, five teeth extracted. All of this would not have happened if she'd had care in a timely manner. And in in reading about this issue, I've discovered, reading the Globe and Mail, they've been covering this, but I wouldn't have known it because it's just not out there. Other than the case of Farrah Kruger, I hadn't heard of any of this before I started this journey. And BC is the worst province in all of Canada for cancer care. They always were the best for such a long time. And now they're the absolute worst. Well, Ree, we're going to continue uh, following up on this and uh, hopefully get some answers from the health ministry and find out why we're seeing delays like this. But uh, I hope we can have you back on the show and talk more about this. Uh, If we leave it there for today, uh, we would love to chat with you again and hopefully get some answers. Yes, thank you. Uh, Like, I'd be delighted if you could because I've banged my head against the wall and everybody says there's nothing they can do. All right. So maybe that $5.7 billion surplus they have could be thrown some of it towards cancer care. That would be amazing. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Talking about health news, well, has the over-sanitization that we saw in the beginning of the pandemic, has that helped lead to the surge of respiratory illnesses with children? Joining us is Dr. Brett Finlay, Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at UBC. Dr. Finlay, thank you so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, you warned about this or talked about this uh, when this was happening. Is this is there a link, do you think, between that over-sanitization and respiratory illness? Oh, there's definitely a link. I mean, last two years, kids have not seen flu or RSV, RSV and people have been wearing masks not going to daycare and, and, and schools and things. And so what's happened is the kids have not been exposed to the normal yearly doses. So there's um, this, well, it's a coarse term, but almost sort of fresh meat or all these kids that haven't been exposed that have never seen the virus for several years now. So we're getting multiple years piled into one year. So this is leading to what we're seeing now in the whole high levels of RSV and flu infections. Uh, we're hearing health officials urging parents to vaccinate their kids and with flu shots for younger kids. Is that the way to, to fight against this or is there any other way to do that? Uh, certainly a way. Flu shots work. Definitely get your kids vaccinated for sure. I mean, we've had six deaths in the last two weeks of kids in B.C. Um, alone due to flu and flu is a preventable disease if vaccines work. So anyone over six months of age should definitely get vaccinated. There are other ways, too, and obviously it's hygiene, right, um, prevent exposure. So wearing masks, if all feasible, definitely. And that's why we didn't see any flu when we were in COVID so badly, because everyone had masks on and they were practicing hygiene matters. And so we prevented flu then. But now we're seeing it. So, And, you know, because of this pent-up demand, there's huge supply demands in the healthcare system. So, you know, if you can delay getting flu or some other time or, you know, prevent it now, I think it's a wise idea to try and take measures into your own hands. And what about kind of naturally working up that immunity? If we're talking about kids, like you said, that had no exposure to these germs, is there a way, is it, is it as we come out of this, will they slowly be exposed and, and build that immunity? Or is it, are we talking about long lasting effects from that early over sanitization? Well, there's two things there. Um, yes, indeed. I mean, think of if anyone's ever had a child and their first year when they go to daycare or school or the first time they contact these settings, you know, every parent knows how many times both the kids and the parents get all these flus and things. So that's their exposure to all these things, and that then does build it up for sure. Um, so it's going to happen. I mean, you can't avoid it unless you go into isolation forever, and we're not doing that. So so it will happen, but the idea is try not happen now when the healthcare is under such a crunch system. And the other thing is because we were so clean in the hygiene, we, we have prevented these kids their normal exposure to healthy microbes. So the other side of the coin is that, you know, these kids do need to get all the normal microbes they normally see in the world, and these actually help the kid develop. It helps their immune system develop, their brain develop, and all these sort of healthy microbes. And you think of the COVID kids who have not had those normal exposures. We believe these kids are, are very deprived of that. We sort of expect to see a bump in the diseases like asthma and obesity um, five years down the line when they kick in because they didn't have these healthy microbial exposures at the beginning. And so how do we stop then from having that bump in asthma and obesity? Can we? Is it too late or are there things that, that can be done now? Um, Partially. Um, I mean, as a kid, I mean, the exposure is really important in the first three months of life, and um, that's when the immune system is developing. So there's, you know, that, but that's gone, so you can't do it. But still, exposing kids to normally healthy microbial exposures will certainly help. I mean, studies show that if you get antibiotics or um, in the first year of life or born by C-section, for example, you have about a 25% rate, higher rate of getting asthma and becoming obese, but that doesn't mean you're going to get it. So I would say, you know, um, still, even now, even that window has passed, but there's still throughout your life, healthy microbial exposure is important. So I would say keep at it, go to the playground, 
let your kid put a handful of dirt in the mouth if they're so inclined. Um, just just live like kids do, dirty, right? And um, if it's safe, I and mean, we're there's this conflict between the hygiene of preventing COVID and all these infectious agents and the idea that we need to expose our bodies to normal microbes. We've been doing that as we've evolved our entire evolution. So um, it's, it's that kind of double-edged sword that do I expose them? Is it safe? And if it's safe, go for it. If it isn't safe, don't go for it. All right, Dr. Finlay, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Okay, thank you. Bye. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Jill Bennett in for Simi Sarah. Well, according to the BC Nurses Union, WorkSafe BC has levied a hefty fine, more than $355,000. It's an administrative penalty to the Northern Health Authority for failing to conduct adequate workplace inspections following reports from nurses and other healthcare workers about ongoing safety issues. And the union says this is not unique to the health authority. Joining us to talk more about this is Amon Graywall, president of the BC Nurses Union. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit, this fine, uh, an administrative penalty and following these reports, what kinds of safety issues and reports are we talking about here? Uh, So it could be anything. It could be... uh, failure of equipment, it could be our workers being injured, any unsafe working condition that is taking place or any injuries that are taking place, they need to be investigated. That is a requirement by WorkSafe BC. And to have this type of fine levied against a health authority, what does that say about the ongoing working conditions? Well, two things. First of all, this uh, fine that was levied um, was actually just one single site uh, that this penalty was issued for, and that was Peace Villa in Fort St. John. And so, I mean, this is a significant penalty for one site. And, uh, you know, this means that our members' complaints when they are injured or they are trying to protect other people from being injured is not being taken seriously by the employer, and that needs to be addressed. And when you talk about it, this being one specific site then in Fort St. John, and and you kind of alluded to that or, or touched on this, but was it one incident or this is a workplace where there have been some very serious or some, some ongoing concerns? So this would be that there are uh, multiple uh, issues that have not been addressed. The management there, the employer has not um, taken this seriously. We have other situations like in Viha in Vancouver Island Health Authority where they have actually engaged in a compliance agreement with WorkSafe for issues related to poorly conducted safety investigations and low safety training rates. So if they do not comply, they would then receive a fine. So that would be the next step. So they have this agreement in place right now. So possibly that may have been something that had taken place at Peace Villa, that they had an agreement and they just didn't comply with that. I'm not certain about the details of that, but what it is, is the follow-up's not being done. And, you know, there's a system failure here as well, where um, when a complaint is filed, 
the computer systems are not uh, integrating with each other and sharing information with each other. So safety data, worker injury data, that is not being uh, compiled together. Security reports, workplace hazard reports, patient safety data, they are all on different computer systems. We need the government to invest in a system that integrates province-wide and um, health authority-wide. I know we've talked in the past as well about uh, the province bringing in more security guards and making sure that there is better security for healthcare workers for exactly this reason, for safety concerns, uh, for violence, which unfortunately we see in healthcare settings. Uh, what is happening with that? Because that was supposed to, if I'm remembering correctly, that was supposed to try and, and alleviate this. So I'm not sure where the government is or Switch BC is in the process of hiring those PSOs, but those PSOs are only going to 26 sites and they are not going to be sites in the Northeast. I believe Prince George is uh, the site that is in the Northeast as well as Terrace and Mills Memorial where they will go. So, I mean, our ask is that eventually this uh, program expands throughout the province so that every work site, uh, community, long-term care, and um, acute care all have PSOs available. Sorry, we've talked about this before, about violence, specifically, again, violence in healthcare settings. And I know uh, things uh, uh, did not get better during the pandemic. How would you kind of categorize it or how would you say things are right now when it comes to nurses and safety? It hasn't improved. It's getting worse. And, you know, we're seeing how the system itself is so strained. The healthcare system is, uh, you know, in crisis. And uh, the fact that people are having to wait long times to get into hospital and get the care that they need or the wait list, et cetera, that is making people angry, and they take that anger out on nurses and healthcare workers. Uh, which uh, I think we can all agree uh, is not okay to be doing that. But what happens in a scenario, and I know we're talking about something different here, and that this is an administrative penalty given to a health authority, but in those moments when somebody is being violent against a nurse and it's not a, a site that has, say, the increased security, what happens in that scenario? Well, the police. RCMP or the local police in that uh, city is then called. And, you know, a lot of these places don't have very many officers, especially in uh, rural settings, and they may be out on a call somewhere else. We've had nurses barricade themselves behind closed doors and have had to run and hide. There was the incident in... um, Trail, I believe it was where the uh, um, there was a shooting and it was a patient left the ER and um, you know shot at uh, the ambulance department and police and that involved our work site. And and do you know at this point how many nurses are off on on leave because of this? I don't have a number for that. Sorry. 
Fair enough, but but safe to say there are nurses. There's a significant number of nurses that are that are on either a medical leave or on a stress leave or have been impacted, and, and the shortage and the strain on healthcare can be linked to this. Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. You know, the psychological health and safety. If you have been involved in a violent incident or witness to a violent incident, um, that can be quite traumatic. And um, let alone dealing with, you know, the injuries that you may have, but also the fear of going back to work, that you're going back to a system that has not been dealt with or corrected and uh, no safety measures have been put in place to protect you from that. There's many nurses that fear going back. All right. Well, Amon Graywall, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you for joining us and raising more awareness and talking about this this morning. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right. You too. That is BCNU President Amon Graywall, again, talking about violence in the system and that in light of an administrative penalty of more than $355,000 that was handed to the Northern Health Authority by WorkSafe BC. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, we have been talking about the Canada Food Price Report. We had one of the authors on the show talking about how a lot of foods will see an increase of about 5 to 7%. That's on top of the increases we've already seen. So how is this impacting businesses, especially those that rely on food prices? Well, show contributor Raji Sohal joins us once again. And Raji, you've been checking in with the local bakery to see how things are going there. Yeah, Jill. I talked to an entrepreneur, Tamara Clark. She's the owner of a cafe and bakery called Bjorn Bar. Uh, they make everything fresh on site daily. And they have two locations in Burquitlam and North Vancouver. And it is always rammed, at least at the one at North Van. They often have this lineup that snakes out the door. So people, I think, assume everything's going swimmingly with profits. This place must be, you know, raking it in. But that's just not the case because of these inflationary prices, these increases, these increases in food prices that we're seeing. And small business owners in the food industry are facing some major challenges with these rising costs of ingredients. And meanwhile, Jill, her competition is those huge chain bakeries, right? Or maybe the grocery store bakery. And in this economy with high inflation, Tamara has had to make a lot of adjustments and considerations. To kind of keep up with the um, rising costs of absolutely everything, not only ingredients, because that has been um, something that's happening like continuously throughout the year, but as well as like, packaging, um, uh, the delivery costs, um, uh, labor costs, like absolutely everything has gone up. So it's, and we can't uh, put prices up that match that inflation because no one would buy a croissant that was, you know, so expensive that uh, to, to reflect how much the ingredients actually cost. Um, so I have to say it has been quite difficult um, uh, and it and continues to be difficult. I don't know um, where it's going to go from here. Um, I think about it daily, um, especially being a small business owner and 
Um, I want to um, continue having uh, really great ingredients that go into all my product. You know, I, I can even give you an example, and this is over the last five years. Um, when I first opened, um, uh, vanilla, to, to use vanilla in all the product that I use, really good vanilla. It was $138, I believe it was, per gallon. Now it's $580 per gallon. It is so expensive. Butter, we use, um, you know, all butter and everything, really, really good quality um, butter. That's gone up from, you know, it was under $200 for a 25 kilo. Now it's over 300 and something for a 25 kilo of butter. Everything is just skyrocketing. That's Tamara Clark of Bjorn Bar Bakery, where she's the uh, owner. She's also a pastry chef herself. And so she mentions ingredients there. Yes, absolutely. Those have gone up in cost. But there's other costs, too, that people don't always think of. So labor at her business, it's not just that front of staff that customers are used to seeing. She has uh, experts in the back, right? She's got four pastry chefs who have gone to school for their trade. They have to be compensated fairly. And the big question for these businesses with this stunning increase in prices is, do you pass the cost on to your customers? Because there's a threshold for that, right? She mentioned uh, a croissant, right? No one's going to pay six bucks for a croissant. doesn't matter how amazing it is. Uh, so she's had to cut down on certain ingredients. Uh, she's had to source differently. Uh, you know, baking's a creative hobby. And she misses the days where she and her pastry chefs were allowed to experiment in the kitchen with baking and see, hey, are people going to like this or that? They can't do that anymore. So now they're super committed to no waste. They calculate what's going to sell out and that's pretty much what they make. So everything's fresh and, and no money or ingredients are lost because there's just not that margin anymore. And Tamara wonders if that's lost on customers. A lot of people don't understand how much it really does cost to uh, create all these things. Um, and the, the labor that goes into it, I think that um, a lot of people just love the fact that it's here, but don't realize the process you go through to get it here. Um, with my two businesses, what I wanted was to have uh, kitchens in both the places so that you're smelling the product. It's baked fresh daily every morning. Um, you're getting the freshest thing that you can possibly get instead of coming from, you know, being delivered every morning. It was, it's, it was a different route that I wanted to do. I wanted to create that, like, really family, um, home baking um, environment. Um, and, yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot... A lot a lot of people, they don't realize like what actually goes in to being able to do that daily. Wow, I'm still reeling at the $580 for a gallon of vanilla. That's a lot of money. <laughs> it sure is. And, you know, it's she's an entrepreneur. She's a baker. She owns, she runs this beautiful bakery. But uh, we're seeing that with grocery, right? Everybody's seeing that, no matter whether you're a baker or not. And with it being Christmas season and a lot of people thinking about what they're going to make over the holidays, that kind of thing, I think we're all paying closer attention to that. Her price of vanilla for bulk has gone up uh, astronomically. But 
I've, I've noticed the price of vanilla go up too. Um, and I have considered getting a different vanilla, despite that I love my Madagascar vanilla bean vanilla. <laughs> yeah. And so we're all, I think, making those uh, adjustments now, Jill. Yeah. And that was one uh, that was going up even before inflation. I remember doing stories on the cost of vanilla. Um, I mean, some might argue that that's not a necessity or not essential. I mean, it is if you're a bakery, maybe not in your day-to-day life, but you're certainly right in looking at the, the food price report vegetables, which uh, we're told we're supposed to eat more and more of these, but those two, a lot of increases. Yeah. And, you know, I've always felt like in my, in my family, you know, I've got two kids. Oh, you know, our grocery is not going to be something that I have to scrutinize over. Well, that's really changed in these, in this economy. Now I, I really uh, am, am careful about which ingredients I go for or not. And you mentioned veggies there. Um, you know, my kids aren't getting into artichoke. So be it. Cause you know what? It's very expensive. <laughs> no, very, very true. But uh, that's interesting. And like she said, an interesting point she made about wanting people to have the whole experience of the baking done on site, but maybe that's not cost effective anymore. Exactly. So she does not want to, but considering something like a commissary kitchen, a kitchen that's not there at the bakery itself, uh, not there with the folks in that communal way, that's something she might be forced to consider down the line if food prices continue to increase in this way. Like she is, she's considering everything. And one thing actually I should say that she is very proud of is, so for example, her uh, one of her pastry chefs, her head pastry chef, has been with her since the start. A very talented chef. She wants to continue working with them and to continue to retain that kind of staff. You have to pay for that labor. And that's a huge, huge cost for them. All right. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill.